From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. My name is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics, and Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics, some combination of the three of us, and Kate Massey here every week, or at least for the last nine plus years, here on Wharton Moneyball, both the podcast edition and on Sirius XM 132. So guys, obviously, this is a big time of sports. We have the NBA playoffs going. We have the NHL playoffs going. Obviously, the MLB season has started. Golf's in high swing. The French Open tennis is coming up. We got, uh, Adi and I were even talking about before the show, the Kentucky Derby's not that far away. You know, we'll probably have our guest Jeff Cedar back on. We'll be talking about horse, the horse racing analytics. But I thought maybe we'd start since the NBA is really in the playoffs right now. Um, I don't know, Shane, we'll start with you. Like, what's caught your eye in the NBA playoffs as we're now just a couple of games in for each team? Bucks lost. <laughs> Lakers won. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I feel like uh, a week ago or two weeks ago, uh, we were you were you were talking about the boxes as kind of relatively unstoppable juggernaut. Um, that's going to roll through the playoffs. You think still think so? It's a good question. Um, obviously, if Giannis is hurt, I mean he's hurt, he's injured. Yeah, but he can't play. Then that's but that's obviously the bigger news than them losing one game. I realize right. that's so, a yeah, totally yeah. different story. Um, you know, look. Unfortunately, of course, as you know, Shane, uh, the Heat who are playing who beat the Bucks in that game. Um, they unfortunately lost their second leading scorer, Tyler Hero, to injury. He broke his hand, so he's out for four to six weeks. He's out the rest of the season. So that doesn't help their chances going mm-hmm. forward. Right. Yeah, I think um, what surprised me more, I love your reaction, Shane, what surprised me more about the Bucs, and you know, when you study the analytics of the team, I assumed it would be a low-scoring game. They gave up 115 points to the Heat who are not really thought at of home. as an offense at home. at home to a team that's not thought of as an offensive juggernaut. The Heat are a defensive team, not an offensive team. So I agree with you. I think we have to rethink. It's one game, as you said, yeah. but we have to rethink the Bucs at least a little bit. How much How much are you rethinking the Bucs? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess not much because I, I I think, you know, it's – it's uh they've kind of been there before. And, I mean, help – taking trying to take kind of health a little bit out of it like i I, i'm pretty confident that they can just kind of take like oh let's just like reset you know game ones in the past but you know let's just kind of roll forward i don't i don't really understand how that particular game one happened either but it seems you know i'm willing to believe or at least i'm more willing to bet that that's a one-off than some kind of the start of a, a disconcerting trend or something like that that would actually impact the Bucks, either in this series or otherwise, injury. You know, when we, you start putting in the Giannis injury and stuff like that, then you do have kind of you start accumulating some longer term um, concerns. But I don't really update. I'm not updating my probability on the Bucks making it through this round just based on their you know first loss. Well, just to let you know, um, five thirty eight has made an adjustment. So not this is not that surprising. Also, it has to make an adjustment because. Mm-hmm. The two teams ahead of them, if you like, in the East right now, the Sixers are 2-0. and They've won the first two games. The Celtics are 1-0, and and they won pretty handily. 
and the Bucks are 0-1. So at some level, you have to make some adjustment because the propensity of getting out of the first round is obviously much higher for the Sixers at 2-0 versus the Bucks that are 0-1. Um, 538 now has the Celtics as the favorite uh, to win the finals, followed by the Sixers, followed by the Nuggets, and then the Bucks are now in fourth place sitting there, which definitely was a big change uh, for a week ago. So how do you think about that? The way I think about it is 538's probabilities, I think, move around too much. They're not, they're not shrunk enough in general. They're, 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 they're too, you know, they're, they put too much probability on the top teams. This is how I think about them, at least in hockey. Maybe I'm projecting a little bit on basketball, but um, I think the, they move around. They're maybe a little bit too sensitive. I mean, yes, of course, going up 2-0 in a series, that's going to affect your probability of making it through the first round. But I mean, you know, I feel like 538's implied, you know, like take the Celtics, for example, like, or, or the 76ers at, at 2-0, like that's the... 538 already had a very high probability going into the series on the 76ers making it through that round. There's not that much to update. And so there's not much to update unless you really think that their performance getting to 2-0 has a more grander effect. Like they look like a much better team than they thought they were. And that should have constant, you know, there could should be or, based on what we see a lot of downstream update to the subsequent rounds. But I'm not seeing that. Of course, another possibility is you've downgraded the Bucks at 0-1, and that probability has to go somewhere, yeah. and the probability is now shifting somewhat to the Celtics or the Sixers, because someone has to take that probability yeah. that the Bucks don't have. Yeah, and I just think, again, to the extent that there's too much, like, I think a little bit too much reaction now, I think those, yeah, the probability is just updating too much. Sorry to interrupt, Adi. Yeah, no, no, I was going to say, Adi, you mentioned the Lakers. So, I mean, besides the Lakers being 1-0 and now, right? Um, and, and by the way, I, I have a comment about that in a second. Adi, um, we, if we talk about injuries, John Morant hurt his hand. We don't even know if he's playing in game number two now, and he may be out for a while. So, you know, how do you see the Lakers right now, Adi? I mean, I don't know if you saw any of the game, but they look good. I don't. I, I didn't see any of the game. I just read. I mean, the thing about basketball, we always talk about this, is that it's just it's so chalky in the first round. And despite the fact that we see things even up, go, go to seven games. It never seemed to be, um, it, I, I think we've looked at this in the past, like the seventh game in, a, in, a, in an early round basketball season almost always goes to the favorite, probably in some level because that's home field advantage to them when that happens. Remember, Adi, just to be clear, the Lakers are the seven and the Grizzlies are the two. Right, I know. So it's like, how, is, how are they going to? Now, the only thing we throw into this is, is there a LeBron, a LeBron factor? This is a guy who doesn't play that hard during the season. Is he, does he, do we get the, the, you know, the, the first or second or third greatest basketball player that ever lived at, despite his age now that, you know, is that the wild card that we have to think about? I always, I always thought that that's a, uh, a possibility. What do you think, Eric? You probably saw Well, him. I'd say a couple things. Um, I don't know. LeBron dropped 30 a game this season, so I'd say he was playing pretty hard. And he also had to get them into the playoffs. Remember, a week to go in the playoffs. Forget the playoffs. Remember, they, they ended up in the play-in round. They had to actually make it to the real playoffs. Let's start with that. Um, second, there's a huge advantage playoff basketball has for a player like LeBron for a couple of reasons. Travels a lot less. You don't travel as much. Number two, you play the same team seven times, which means a guy as intelligent as he is and has got the experience that he is can make adjustments that you don't have to make during or you don't have time to make really during the regular season. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think playoff LeBron is better. Now, here's a stat. I, I, I found it. I don't know why they kept repeating this stat. And you guys tell me, I don't know if you heard it, but I'll tell it to you. And you say, if you think it has any value in predicting this year. So the Lakers going up 1-0 in a series, which they are now, are 24-0 in their last 24 series. It's not been since 1992, 91, sorry, when they played the Bulls in the finals with my, against Michael Jordan that the Lakers lost the first lost the series that oh, first round series that they were up one nothing. And I'm thinking, what the hell does that do with this year's team? LeBron's <laughs> only been on two or three of these. No, but they kept that's like, exactly what I was thinking as you said that. I know, but every station Shane kept repeating, the Lakers are 24 and 0. You mean like Kareem Abdul Jabbar and Magic Johnson and James Worthy? And you mean Kobe Bryant and Pau Gasol? Like you're mixing over these five generations of Lakers? Yeah, well, I mean, like it's, you know, the Lakers are like the Yankees in baseball. Right? It's like you can't talk, if you're going to talk about a unit amount of time in basketball, you have to devote, it's like we're legally you know, obligated to devote 40% of that time to the Lakers. You know, it's, 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 it's like the whole, the media world, very much wants the Lakers to always be relevant and you know, they are relevant right now, but of course I do think that there's a media bias kind of towards, towards kind of the Lakers. All right. So let's, let's talk bottom line here. Where, what is, what are the odds on the Lakers in the first round now? The actual betting 538 or, oh, or 538, 538, 538 has them as a two to one favorite right now. 67, to, win. to win the series, 67%. Yep, and they were definitely not favorites at the beginning, but that makes sense, Adi. I mean, one game can shift you from a 45% to 67%. Maybe that's an over. Maybe it has to do with John Moran. It can, and it will if it's 538, but I don't buy it. I don't. I mean, usually not. I mean, yeah. I can imagine that. I mean, uh, all right, so what is uh, what are the what are the betting lines have? I'd have to look up. I'd have to look up the betting lines. Give me a second. I could look that up. Although, we'll- too, but I mean, I have to say, I mean, you have to really buy. I mean, a two versus seven. Well, I mean, I'm actually curious. I don't even know what it was before the first game. Um, I don't know how significant the injury is. I think I think Miranda is listed as uh, T. You know, possible possible for the next possible. Game? But the problem is, it's his shooting hand, and the hand was already injured. And he said his pain on the level of a ten on a one to ten scale. Um, but let me say also another advantage the Lakers have. Let's say they do beat the Grizzlies, and I agree with you. Two to one sounds way too high at this point. But let's whatever the number is, they're certainly the favorites at this point. I think we can all agree to that. They don't have to play the other three teams, which many people talk about on the West right now, which is Denver, who's the one seed, or the Suns of the Clipper or the four or five. They don't reseed in basketball. So if the Lakers do happen to win, they're going to play the winner of the Kings and the Warriors. And by the way, let's speak about that for a second. The Kings are up two to nothing on the Warriors. That has never happened to this Steph Curry-led dynasty that they've had. They've never gone down 0-2. I'll ask you, Shane, are the Warriors done? No. No, I mean, again, I I, I, I mean, it's not obviously looking great. But no, I mean, I could, uh, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I think the Warriors are the sixth seed. Is that right? They are the six, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Playing so, the three, I mean, it's kind of, you know, I mean, it, I, I guess I would sort of favor, you know, I, I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't put the probability above 0.5. But again, shifting the probability, are they a team where going into the series, you would have had them as particularly probable to win the series? I would say it was, you know, if you forget history, let's talk about this season performance, yeah. this season. Yeah. I would say, 
50-50. Right. So, I, I mean, the fact 50, that they're down... And that's where it is still now, according yeah, yeah. to 538. But. Yeah, right. So, I mean, if you're kind of 50... You know, I, I mean, I, it should be, you know, there's now two games, you know, in, in the bank or whatever. But I would still say, you know, I wouldn't put them, like, lower than a, I don't know, like a 25%, 20% chance to win that series now. Well, 538 has it 50-50, which seems... That seems too high for the Warriors. I don't know how you can yeah. have 50-50... Yeah, I get down two to love. I just don't know how that. And by the way, just to remind all of our listeners here on Morton Moneyball, we've talked about this. I don't remember if it was 10 and 31 or 11 and 30. The Warriors were the second worst road team in the NBA this year. So the fact that they lost the first two games at the Kings, one could argue they haven't played well on the road all season long. Yeah. And so, and of course they don't have home court, which is another reason there's no they are going to have to this Garrett. They are going to have to win one on the road to get through. They're going to have to win at least one on the road, and they're down two to love. I mean, don't guarantee that it's going to get back to yeah. the two. Well, let's talk about our home team. We're here in Philadelphia. We're all here in Philadelphia recording Wharton Moneyball again. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with professors of statistics Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey here every week. On the whether it's the podcast edition you're listening to or on Sirius XM 132, we're here on Wharton Moneyball. So let's go back to the Sixers again. So we're up 2 0. We're going to beat the Nets. I don't, I'm not worried about beating the Nets, but the Celtics are coming next. They don't reseed in basketball. No matter what happens in the Bucks Heat series, we're playing the Celtics. And I, you guys have probably seen this. I think the Sixers have the longest streak in NBA history of making the playoffs but not making even the conference finals. The Sixers haven't made the conference finals. I think it's in 15 straight playoff appearances. It's 14 or 15. It's some number like that. And let's all remember, guys, this is my question to you. That's why we trusted the process, because we kept making the playoffs. We kept making it to the first or second round, and we could never get past whether it was the San Antonio Spurs or the Lake, or, you know, sorry, they're in the West. We could never get past the Celtics or the Bucks or, you know, the Heat or one of those top teams. We've not even made the conference finals. Forget the NBA finals, the conference finals. Do you see if the Sixers lose to the Celtics again, don't we have to trust the process? We keep them beat and get rid of everybody else? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I agree. Is that what you do? You keep Embiid? Yes. Even even though again the Eric uh, well, well I feel like the Eric one of the Eric Bradwell principles is like what's holding them back from that next level of performance is their best player as a center, right? So I mean, you know, I mean Eric, your your one of your guiding principles is like maybe you know just strategically there's a cap on their performance. And that they need to kind of, you know, basically blow blow it completely up and and, and go for build around, you know, the best player not being a center. I'm not saying I love Embiid. I'm not. I, I'm kind of throwing this out as a straw, man. I just kind of want to hear your thoughts on it. Well, I agree. It is consistent with what I've said for nine plus years on Wharton Moneyball that you're screwed in the NBA when your best player is a center. Yeah. Uh, Embiid is obviously, in my view, a generational talent. I think he's an extraordinary player. Um, you know, last night he showed his will to win when he didn't, he still shot over 50% from the field, but only took 13 shots. He had 20 points, 19 rebounds and seven assists. That's not, if they're going to stop you, 
have to, and I think four or five blocks. Just block the shots, get a bunch of rebounds. He still dropped 20 and he had seven assists. That's not so bad. Um, yeah, I mean, the other question I guess you're asking, Shane, is if they keep him beat, who do they have of any trade value? Trust in the process. Yeah, no, I, or I guess I'm saying, like, as, as you design this next, like, the process phase two, it's really kind of like, is it going to be more highly probable, you know, two, three years? Because it's going to be a re, kind of a rebuild regardless. Two, three years down the road, do you think it's going to be like, by that time, is Embiid still going to be the player you're going to want to, as the centerpiece of that team? Because he's already, you know, there's a lot of minutes on that. I mean, he's played a long and very successful career already, and he's a center. Yep. And so it's kind of, I, I think as much as I've loved watching him play, I, I think it's almost like the Embiid widow is kind of closing or maybe has closed in terms of building that next level team around him. That said, it's all, it's, we don't want to get too outcome, fo- you know, they could make a run and we could be like the process finally worked. They won the championship with Embiid. I think we have to, you know, it's interesting that you pointed out because he's only, he's only, it depends how you want to look at this. Remember, he, let's first start. He didn't play essentially for his first two seasons in the NBA. So you could argue his chronological age is less than his basketball age. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's 28 chronologically. So one could argue he's quote unquote a young 28 because he didn't have, he doesn't have as many cumulative minutes as a 28 year old might have. But I think your point is a good one. Like how many. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see the distribution of, Future, you know, four centers for people basically of his body type that have had that many minutes in their career. What's the kind of what's the distribution of remaining minutes in their career or whatever? That that would be kind of what I I think the kind of projection you'd want to do. And I think that that just, you know, you would know better than me. But I I, I would think that you're really kind of talking probably only a few more, you know, a few more years where you can really kind of have him at his peak. So if you can kind of if you could turn it around quickly or if you kind of feel like they're the process part two could just be adding particularly complementary pieces on top of a structure that you think already is a championship structure. Maybe they can make a run, you know, sooner. Well, guys, the good news is, is that the um, the NBA playoffs are in full swing. There have been there's at least as Adi said, um, it usually goes chalk, but we certainly have the potential for some upsets. Um, You know, the Lakers are seven. They're leading two. That's the potential for an upset right now. I mean, I don't give the Heat much chance, but they, they are up one nothing on the uh, Milwaukee Bucks, so eight's leading zero, so you never know. Well, we should spend at least four or five minutes uh, remaining in Q1 talking about the NHL. Yeah. I believe, Shane, I'm correct. Well, we have no expectations of it going shock based no, on that. Uh, no, but history. it did just start last night. So yeah. why don't you summarize for our listeners on what Moneyball, what happened last night and the non-shockiness already of last night? Yeah, no, and I mean, I guess I, I there have you know, I, I, again, we only have basically four games in, but uh, so two series in the East played last night, two series in the West. Obviously, the Bruins are kind of on everybody's radar because they are this historically great team, and they won last night. So both the East, basically both of the East uh, games, kind of went chalk. The chalk, the higher team seed, uh, higher seed team went, went won. The Bruins and Hurricanes both be uh, both won in the West. Actually, again, it was like a set of two, uh, two, two versus three matchups. Right. So it's, you know, those, you know, kind of went for the three seed, the wild team, the wild and the Kings and uh, Kings over the Oilers wild over the stars. But to the extent that that's, again, would I update, you know, my expectations of how chalky the first round would go is pretty low anyway. And I wouldn't necessarily update them so much just based on one game. One of the things I think you put in our rundown, uh, Shane, was that before last night, 
They five thirty eight. Yeah, five thirty eight. Thirty seven percent chance of winning. Now so, and, and now the Bruins are up to forty percent chance of winning the Stanley Cup. All right, so explain 40%. for listeners why that's it, it. Just can't be right. Well, I, I guess. I mean, uh, if these listeners have ever watched the ho- hockey before or the hockey playoffs before, I think they're they're probably going to have the same reaction as me. But I mean, one simple way to think about it is, you know, if the let's just condition on the Bruins making it to the Stanley Cup Finals for a second, would you give them much be more than 50-50 to beat the Avalanche or the Oilers or whatever top team came out? Again, they're historically good, but I wouldn't go much beyond a coin flip in that final means they have to have an 80 percent chance of making it there and there's three rounds there's and three so look, rounds even if it's let's just be listen to our let's just for our listeners here even if they have a 90 percent chance of winning each round well that's 0.9 to the third that's 72 percent. that yeah. doesn't get you to 40 percent no so, the, the implied kind of round by round probabilities that go into a forecast like 40 percent. it's just it, it does it seems too high for me and i it just more generally beyond the bruins example it's just kind of crazy that, you know, the Bruins have a 37 or 40% chance. The Avalanche have something like an 18% chance, according to 538. So that's basically over 50% of your probability essentially sucked up by two teams. And, you know, that then there's hardly any teams. It would, like there's not all the other teams are like there's a drop off to like, you know, less than 10% for every other team in there. So I just, we I only have about it. a minute left, but let me just ask you, I'll, we'll do it right now. We'll do what we've always done. I'll give you the Bruins and the Avalanche. I'll take the rest of this. I'll take the rest of the NHL. Which, which side do you want? The rest, the rest, the rest. Ah, uh, you can have the top two. Bad, Shane, because this is like a generational talent, the team. I mean, the Bruins. I mean, I know that the odds are, are the betting odds still. I don't know what they are for the Bruins, but they were about yeah. 20%. As yeah, and again, I, I, yeah, in, in in any other right, and I guess right. If you've and if you've convinced yourself that the Bruins are unstoppable, then obviously five thirty eight kind of reflects <laughs> that. But yeah. you know, but you know, again, in, in any other year, if you said I'm going to give you the top two seeds, you uh, know, and I'm not even sure the, the Avalanche aren't even the top seed. I think in the in in the West, but anyway, yeah, I give you the top two seeds. You know, you give me every other team. You're, there's no way you take the top two seeds in the NHL playoffs. I think no, you're at a fifty-fifty. No, no so way. it's really just you got to buy. I mean, you got to buy into like somehow the five thirty-eight model has bought into that the Bruins are just this next level unstoppable force. And if they end up being, I'll be you know, now I'll congratulate them. But I don't, I don't think that's you know. I think they'll. I think it'll be a challenge for them at least. Well, right. that's that, that's been the end of the uh, first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports talk radio. We talk about sports business statistics here on Wharton Moneyball. My name is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. And I'm here with my colleagues, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen, both professors of statistics. And some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week on Wharton Moneyball. Guys, as we've always talked about, one of the great things about our show is we get to uh, talk to people that are in the field actually applying analytics to sports, and this quarter is no different. So we're fortunate to have a returning guest, Benjamin Robinson. Uh, Benjamin is the creator, as everyone knows, of Grinding the Mocks. Uh, This is a website that is so relevant, especially right now with the NFL draft coming up just next week. So, Benjamin, uh, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Great to be back. Thank you so much. 
Well, so Benjamin, why don't we just start with the following just for our listeners that haven't heard our show or aren't following you on Twitter at, by the way, at Benj, B-E-N-J underscore Robinson. That's B-E-N-J underscore Robinson. For those people that don't follow you on Twitter or don't go to Grinding Mocks on Twitter, um, tell us about what Grinding the Mocks is and what got you started in it. Yeah, so uh, Grinding the Mocks, we're a predictive mock draft analytics company. You know, we basically kind of do what you know, Nate Silver does in election polling, we do for mock drafts for, in this case, the NFL draft, but this type of uh, analysis can get applied to multiple different types of sports. But, you know, we generally take the wisdom of crowds approach with mock drafts, and we kind of use our own proprietary algorithms to predict where players are going to get drafted. So that's a good point. So that was what I was going to ask you. So this is the great, great lead in. Thank you, Benjamin. Um, you could imagine doing two things with analytics. And it sounds like what you're focusing on, but please correct me if I'm wrong, is trying to predict the draft as opposed to once someone's drafted, let's predict how successful they're going to be in the NFL. But so first, let's just start with that question. Is that correct? You're mainly focused on predicting the draft as opposed to success given where you're drafted. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, the, it turns out that oftentimes, even when you kind of try to come up with projection models, uh, looking at, you know, athleticism at productivity in terms of statistical outputs of players that where they're drafted has a lot of signal, um, especially in football for how they're going to perform in the league. There's obviously still, still a lot of variation, but you often see that, you know, the, the draft position is, is quite predictive. So the league still in terms of what signal on average, the league does a pretty good job in terms of pre-draft what we know about players ex ante kind of at a high level um, with this like public data that we have out there that the, the draft position is actually what's most predictive. And right now we don't even know where players are going to get drafted. So my data is you know, pretty relevant for people who are interested in kind of understanding right now what's going on in terms of players where they're projected to go and you know, kind of what's the, the sort of biggest pre-draft factor that we know about players' likelihood to kind of succeed, which is largely hinged on where they're going to go in the draft. So let me just ask one follow-up question, then I'll turn it over to Shane. So um, so what you're saying, just for our listeners out there, because we're a statistics show, we get to talk statistics and stuff. Um, if you were going to predict, let's say, success in the NFL, and you had a bunch of measurable characteristics, let's say combine, college performance, et cetera, what you just said to our audience, Benjamin, is that actually adding the additional covariate or X variable of where the person is drafted, you think has extra predictive power above and beyond just, I'll call them observable characteristics, because there's information value from where the teams eventually choose to draft someone. Is that how I should interpret what you said? A little bit. I think that they're very correlated to begin with. So, you know, for me, when I, when I, you know, I think that if you put all that in kind of a classic linear regression model, you'd end up with a lot of you know, heteroscedasticity, basically. Uh, I think I think that's the right word. But yeah, so linearity. I think. Yeah, yeah, see, I'm I'm so far gone. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so you'd end up with some yeah a lot of collinearity there. Um, So the thing that I think it does really well is that um, it helps kind of contextually weigh what the market is saying about those things. We know that there's not these like kind of direct linear relationships at at the high level. There's some at the different positions. But we know that there's some things that if you just looked at the data, you couldn't necessarily weigh them potentially. So, for example, like, let's say, look at the 2021 draft where you have players like Jamar Chase and Micah Parsons, where, you know, they didn't there wasn't a combine. 
Uh, they didn't, they, they opted out of the draft, but we know that they're really talented. You know, how would we capture that in data? We'd have a lot of missing data. I know this is an extreme example, but there's lots of different examples across the, the years where this sort of market idea of where a player can go can give us quite a bit of signal just because in the, the football world, the draftnik world, I like to call it, there's a lot of people who kind of take this approach to player evaluation or player kind of projection very seriously and weigh a lot of these individual factors into their evaluations. Yeah, and also we all know averaging a bunch of different things, wisdom of the crowds has value. I know Shane wanted to jump in next, then Adi. Well, again, I guess I want to kind of uh, grind down a little bit into what you mean kind of by being predictive. Like I could, so I certainly kind of see that kind of overall, if you look at the entirety of the draft, draft slot or where you're drafted at is going to be correlated with performance in the sense that like people in or draft players who are drafted in the first round do tend to go on to have better careers than players drafted in the sixth round. That's kind of like, that's kind of the analogy of sort of saying like, you know, the SAT is predictive of kind of your performance in college kind of taken across all students, but then focused on a specific round, like say the first round, the really, the really important one, is it still, it's less clear to me historically that kind of the ordering of draft, like, you know, like take, say if there's four players, four quarterbacks drafted in the first round, the order in which they're drafted, I, I, I'm less convinced that that's actually correlated with how they're going to be ordered in terms of their success, because that's a very kind of, that's a, a very kind of specific part of the kind of upper part of the distribution. So, I mean, I'm kind of willing to buy in that kind of overall draft draft, the draft slot is predictive performance. I just, I don't know about at that upper tail of the really best players yeah. how so much like 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 drafted like fifth versus 15th is there any predictive power there yeah so benjamin how do you think just to reiterate what Shane said for our audience how do you think of cross round versus within round heterogeneity and how much like how much spacing do you need between draft picks for there really to be enough signal i'm sure our listeners would love to hear your thoughts on that yeah i, I think it does de- i think shane is right at the at the top of the distribution i would expect there to be There'd be, there's, yeah, the ordering is not perfect. I'm not saying that the the overall ordering of of players, if you wanted to like rank players within position, that that order of of, of players is going to be exactly right in terms of how you define who's the best at the end of maybe their rookie contract or something like that. Um, it also depends if you're drafting. Um, you know, Michael Lopez had had this kind of really great blog post, you know, maybe four or five years ago or something like that, looking at you know what are you drafting for. Are you drafting for just production or are you drafting for for superstars? And so the draft curve looks very different uh, depending on how you want to look at that. So in terms of within round and inter round, um, I have some um, some work that I'll be doing in the offseason kind of looking into that some more because we're finally going to be at the point where we have enough years of data to be able to look in the at this at this in a kind of a deeper way. So expect some some research in the offseason on that. I don't have as much uh, insight to provide beyond that I'm, I'm looking into it some more just it takes a while for the these players to kind of reveal within the first contract which ones were good and which ones were and, anyway. and, and that and that, uh, what makes the process extra complex sorry to just kind of riff off this is that you know it's performance or kind of whatever career success whatever outcome measure is going to be both the product of you know how good that player actually is so you're kind of thinking drafted. about the draft slot as a kind of a evaluation of how good they are as well as how good of a developmental situation they're going into you could imagine a scenario where like say for example you had 
five first-round quarterbacks, and they're all actually equally good, truly equally good, you might actually get a negative correlation between draft order and performance because obviously by definition, the, the, the ones drafted earlier are going to worse teams. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it's kind of like you kind of it's it's not clear how among kind of uh, among very minutely kind of or, or very minutely different or very highly similar kind of players in terms of their quality. You know, looking at the draft when draft is kind of not just, you know, what the best players go first, but the worst teams pick first. It's, it, there's a lot. It's a very complicated process, basically. Yeah, that's that's why I focus on where the players are going to get drafted. It's a much easier problem to try to assess than. Uh, you know, where are these players going to be in terms of how productive they are um, in their careers? And so it's a little bit easier of a question for me. And it turns out that if you want to work with teams, this is something that they're very interested in because it's a lot more clear cut and dry than telling them about, you know, how you'd quantify player evaluation, which is a very kind of uh, private. And uh, I think it's driven quite a lot and lately by innovations in private data. Yep. Adi, you want to do a jump in here? Yeah. Yeah, Benjamin, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the cognitive biases that we've observed or have been observed in baseball with early draft position and opportunity. So in, in, in football, when you get drafted, you get you get you're pretty much right into high, certainly higher draft rounds. Uh, you're, you're right into the pros and that's how it goes. But in baseball, you 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 aren't you're in the minors and you sit there and it's been noticed that if you're drafted early you just get way more opportunity they promote you further it doesn't matter how shitty you are they just they're invested in you and they push you forward and you get through um and and in baseball of course you can really evaluate a player and you can you can see how they're doing and and you can notice that there's this actually negative correlation um between expectations and draft level because of that that phenomenon is there anything like that in in football are you seeing people given more opportunity because they've been drafted early uh, do they get better statistics and better opportunities because you damn it it's sunk you know they don't understand the concept of sunk cost right um which is one of the one of the great you know cognitive biases i think that's definitely the case you know i think the other thing is that the pool of players is so much smaller in baseball the draft is, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how many rounds it is today, but it used to be, you know, how many hundred rounds or something like that. Something that's about 40 now. <laughs> yeah. So we're still at a, a pretty big uh, pool of prospects, whereas the NFL draft is still only, you know, about 250 players a year. The other thing is that um, the thing about high draft position is that even if you don't make it at your current team, it probably means that other teams valued you similarly. And so players, um, you know, will get often better opportunities with other teams, even if they've washed out at their current team because of their draft position. Whereas, you know, players who performed like they have, you know, I'll give an example like uh, Nikhil Harry, uh, the wide receiver from the drafted by the Patriots, you know, in the first round, didn't play at all up to that kind of level, still got an opportunity in a different team, like I think in Chicago, because of his draft status. There was a guy, um, yeah, there's tons of these kind of players that just you look at their draft position. Um, you know, I think you even see it sometimes in players who've even produced well, whereas you have kind of players like, uh, for example, at um, I'm trying to think maybe. Yeah, there's been there's been examples, basically, of, of players where the, the second contract, I think maybe a guy like Max Crosby, for example, um, the edge rusher for the Las Vegas Raiders, who is, you know, drafted in the fifth round, I believe, out of Eastern Michigan, has had a, a tremendous career just a really, really great, um, great find for the Raiders who've kind of had, you know, way more success finding players later in the draft than they have earlier in the draft um, under the old regime with John Gruden, Mike Mayock. But 
you know, you end up seeing other players who I don't think performed as well and they might get better deals because they have the name or they have the draft position. And oftentimes, yeah, draft capital really speaks really heavily. And you, I think you can see that a lot, for example, in some of the work that Brad Spielberger, who you've had on um, from PFF and, and um, his partner from Over the Cap. Um, so um, to me, yeah, the, the contract stuff, when you kind of get to that second level, sometimes draft capital can speak a little bit more than productivity, which is kind of crazy. Because you'd think that revealed preference that we would know that Max Crosby would be deserving of such high a contract, but then it doesn't really necessarily happen. And you just kind of have to look back at somehow his draft position is still leaking into those contract negotiations somehow, despite the fact that he's had an amazing start to his career. Yeah, and I mean, I think the way I think about that kind of that decision, it's not so surprising to me because, I mean, you know, if you want to, you you know, if you want to kind of think about it, it's like you're the, you're, the draft position is kind of like represents, if you want to think about that as kind of a summary of, everybody's kind of decision, you, you know, a summary of everything that came before their actual professional career, kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an encapsulation of our prior on what their ability level is. And then, you know, you actually observe data and the data, you know, obviously, out, you know, eventually outweighs the prior, you get enough data, but, you know, by the end of a, a first contract, depending on injury history and all that type of stuff, you stood, the prior might still have equal weight or, you know, a, a, you know, a noticeable amount of weight relative to the actual data you've observed. Yeah, I think for sure. I think you see this in in some uh, projection models where they have a prior. And so the question is, how long, um, you know, from the time that they're drafted in the NFL till we decide that that prior doesn't matter as much. So, you know, for example, Trevor Lawrence didn't have a great first year um, in terms of his rookie performance as an NFL player. Um, But, you know, Mac Jones had the best year. But then at the start of his second year, you'd see, you know, smart people like, for example, I think Pro Football Focus would have you know, Trevor Lawrence still ranked number one, even Zach, Zach Wilson too, at that point as well, and say, hey, you know, we think this draft position prior really matters, but as your career goes on, it should matter less and less. But yeah, I mean, there, there are players you would think that it wouldn't be the case, like a, a Sam Darnold, who I think it was pretty clear, or a, maybe even a Josh Rosen, where you think it becomes pretty clear that the, the, the actual talent doesn't match where they were drafted, but they're still getting opportunities um, to be backup sometimes, but still getting opportunities. Well, we're here on Wharton Moneyball talking to Benjamin Robinson, creator of Grinding the Mocks. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen, and Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. So, Benjamin, I wanted to ask you, since lots of people do mock drafts, probably the two most famous right now, obviously, Mel Kuyper for a very long period of time, Todd McShay for a fairly, fairly reasonable long period of time, what's the biggest, I would say, misconception or mistakes that even the most experts make in mock drafts? Do they put too many of a certain position up high? Do they, you know, we always talk about devaluing running backs, but, you know, some always seem to sneak into the first round, like, you know, and maybe it's B. John Robinson this year. Like, where do you see, where are the general errors that people make? I don't mean in drafting where they make mistakes in the draft. I mean, mistakes and their misconceptions about mock drafts. Yeah, so... I think the number one misconception, I think you see it year by year is overvaluing the number of quarterbacks that go in the first round. I think that can really structurally change what a draft looks like. And it takes up a valuable spot from, for example, another position, given how so few first round mock draft picks there are basically. So I think that's the number one thing. So this year, you know, the question is, is there going to be four or five quarterbacks in the first round? Well, having a fifth quarterback go in the first round, I think really changes what the draft looks like, um, you know, I, that's a very rare phenomenon. You don't really see that many 
times where you have five quarterbacks. Just asking, would that would that fifth quarterback be Hendon Hooker? Is that who people are talking about as being the fifth one? Yeah, people are talking about Hendon Hooker, the uh, 25-year-old quarterback from Tennessee who has an ACL injury potentially going um, in the first round. Um, He has a pretty good production profile. Um, I don't think people quite understand that he's 25 years old, or maybe they do and they just choose to ignore it. Um, But yeah, so he, I think, has a much better chance than he did. He's the top rising player in my data over the last two weeks, accounting for you know, the higher picks being worth more than lower picks. So yeah, to me, Hennon Hooker is a player that I think you have to consider now. Um, the mock drafts that are happening this week and next week are the ones that I weight the highest um, in my metrics. So hopefully if we start seeing him kind of push down a little bit, then maybe over this coming week, we should see that number go down if we, if, if it was just something that was talk and not something serious. Um, so but I think some you- very serious people are, are, including him in there. And so it's something that we have to discuss. Yeah. So I was listening to sports talk radio this morning and I was Mel Kuyper was on and I was hearing like, what's, and I was actually looking at grinding the mocks today. And I was looking at your time curves, if you'd like over people's draft status, what's going on with, you know, if you would ask me a week ago, I would have said, I don't know, 80% probability that young Stroud Levis and Robinson uh, we're all going in the fir- first 10 picks. Now I'm not that confident of that. What's been going on in your mind or what have you seen over the last week that has changed? As you said, you're trying to collecting the wisdom of the crowds. Why has the wisdom of the crowds made it not so obvious anymore? Yeah. So the story of this process has been a little bit funky. So I'll tell the story sort of a little bit of the season, just kind of real quick. So at the beginning of the off season, you had Stroud number one and young number two, kind of had Levis and a bunch of other guys afterwards. The season ended and Young had kind of come out on top, had played a bit better than Stroud had this year. So he was considered number one. Then when the trade that happened that the Panthers made to spring up to number one with the Bears, news was reported that the Panthers preferred CJ Stroud. So CJ Stroud went on top. Um, Now that we're getting closer to the draft, um, that might, I think that might've been premature. I think that the odds that made Stroud really high to be the number one pick were also premature. Um, and so it's reversed because I think people have really done a deep study and have seen that most of the people in the league think that young is the kind of better quarterback. Um, so not that Stroud isn't better, but the other thing is the rise of Richardson, um, Anthony Richardson from Florida, the kind of very elite quarterback athleticism, probably one of the best ever quarterback performances at a combine um, really opened people's eyes to him and kind of the sort of upside quote unquote that he might have. Um, I think now there's potentially some regression to the mean right now. I have Levis rising a bit and Richardson falling a bit um, in terms of where they were since the last release. But to me, I I've always thought that the initial order of um, you know, post uh, the season being over of young Stroud Levis Richardson made more sense overall that some teams, you know, Mike see basically that um, that Richardson was not as good, uh, hasn't had as good of a floor as people would be, like to believe. Um, there's been some really interesting work in terms of the short area accuracy that Richardson really, really, really lacks He's really kind of a YOLO quarterback. He loves to throw the ball deep and is very, very good at, um, you know, quarterback runs. But that's sort of the basic stuff. That's the bread and butter of NFL offenses. A quarterback like Levis might be better. 
So to me, the restacking at the top is, I think, more of a regression to the mean of the, um, well, if you want to call it that, because they're kind of both number one and number two. But Young has been number one in terms of the like prospect rankings pretty much since the season ended. Um, so Stroud has always been number two. And then there's kind of been a back and forth between Levis and Richardson. And I think Levis is going to end up being that third quarterback taken because he has like a, a better floor than Richardson. I think the floor for both Richardson and for Levis is a bit lower than we might've thought at the beginning of the year, yeah. but I still think that that Levis's floor is higher than Richardson's right now. So let me ask you, I might as well ask you, I've asked everyone else on this show who's talked about the NFL draft. Any concerns you have? I mean, I'm six feet, 195 pounds, and I'm sure I'm bigger than Bryce Young. So any concerns, I mean, forget what they list him at. I mean, if you'd like, I'll go out and eat a big meal and I'll weigh 204 also. So that's not a problem. Like, do you have any concerns about him and the size he is? And I would say, tell me the really successful quarterback in the NFL. I mean, if you want to talk about Drew Brees, and maybe he's around that same size, I guess, give or take. You want to say Kyler Murray. I don't know. He hasn't won anything. So any concerns that you have about just the measurables of Bryce Young? And will he last? Will he actually play enough games because of injury concerns, et cetera? Yeah, you know, I think that's that's one of the things I like about this data is that everyone has thought about that in their rankings. It's apparent when you watch him um, that that's who he is. No one's hiding that. Um, so to me, when I see that and all that stuff is, you know, in spite of it, I, I'm comfortable with him being the top quarterback just by play. Um, I think projection is important. Um, the other thing is the selection bias piece. There's just not a lot of examples that were out there. I mean, you guys, I think the other week mentioned Fran Tarkenton. I mean, you know, most people don't even remember what, you know, if you ask people who Fran Tarkenton was, then I'm not sure they'd remember what position he played if they weren't Vikings fans. But um, to me, yeah, I, I think there's, 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 there's got to be some concern there, um, but I still think he can be successful. Um, I think they're going to take advantage of the qualities that he does have, and you can make up for deficiencies if you have superpowers. And the question is, what is Bryce Young's superpower? And so, for example, you can make up for he. I think he has pretty good, um, you know, arm strength. Um, I think he has very good accuracy, and he also has this this kind of superpower, which is his awareness yeah. and his ability to escape and things like that. So, you know, it can be hard to avoid hits, but he has, I think, something about him that will help him succeed and make up for the deficiencies he, he has. And so I think the players that have been good have found ways to get around. They have these superpowers that help them kind of outweigh some of the things that they potentially have in terms of physical deficiencies. And that was what makes them successful. So we only have a few minutes left. Let me ask you a bunch of rapid fire questions. Maybe I'll ask them to give us kind of 30 second answers on each. Um, true or false, the top four quarterbacks go in the first seven picks. In other words, the Las Vegas Raiders end up taking a quarterback and that's the last of the big four. Yeah, I'd say true. Yeah. I, I, in my mock draft for football outsiders that I did last week, I had, I had them going in there. Um, yeah, I think that there's always a possibility of a trade, but I, eh, I think at least three will go in the top seven, four. I might have to say no now. Maybe I'd more I think about it to talk myself out of it. Yeah, I think potentially Richardson kind of falls a bit, but um, I can't. I think it kind of lays. It has. It depends on whether you think teams like the Lions, the Seahawks, recognize how unlikely it is that they're going to be picking that high again, and the the opportunity to pick a quarterback when they're kind of in a weird position when it comes to the veterans they currently have in their roster. It relies okay. on them being smarter in that way. All right, number two, rapid fire. There is a 0% chance that Will Anderson or Jalen Carter is pick number one by the Carolina Panthers. 
Yeah, I think it's a 0% chance. You don't trade up to the number one pick in the draft to take a lineman. No offense to the linemen, but they're Isn't just not what, as valuable. Didn't, wasn't didn't that what happened? I may have this wrong. Did they trade up? Did Miles Garrett go number one? And didn't they trade up to get him? Or am I wrong that they traded up to get him? The Browns? Yeah, or they just got him at um, if they if, if they didn't get him at number one, it might have been a trade from a prior year. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't I don't think there was a, a trade. They definitely the earned the number one pick the old yeah. way for a couple yeah. years in a row. There. Okay, but you're saying there's no either way. You're you're Benjamin. You're confident that it's going to be a quarterback. They didn't trade up to from number nine to number one to not draft a quarterback. Yeah, yeah. I think the buzz right now though is that number two might be a non-quarterback, and I think it really boggles the mind if the Texans are also going to be at number two and they decide to pass on a quarterback. I know that they have the twelfth pick from the the, t- the Browns which was, you know, theirs from the Deshaun Watson trade. I just don't think that you can, there's the likelihood of that, that other quarterback being there, unless they think Anthony Richardson is, is going to be devalued that much. Um, I think it's a risk. And to be honest, you know, you can find this edge rusher class is, is quite good. You can find a, a pretty good edge rusher prospect if you really wanted them at, at pick 12. Well, let me give you another alternative. And I hadn't heard this until I heard Mel Kuyper again, talk about it this morning. Maybe none of this year's draft class of quarterbacks are that good. He has Caleb Williams rated much higher than any of these quarterbacks. So is it possible in your mind that these four quarterbacks are all good, but none of them are, you know, Peyton Manning, Andrew Luck, kind of surefire, you know, at the time they came out? Yeah, they may all be great quarterbacks and they may all not. So is there a possibility someone passes on a quarterback only because they think next year's class might be better? I think it's possible. I think that's sort of the logic a little bit with the Texans at two. Yeah. Um, that's why I was asking based on your yeah. comment, Texans comment. I, I mean, I disagree. Um, I think that, you know, there's really, there's not a chance that you're going to be picking number one. Like you had, I don't think, you know, I don't know, but the Texans could bottom out again, but they've been bottoming out for the last like four years. So the question is, you know, at one point, <laughs> what point, what's, what's going to change? I mean, they, they still had the chance to pick number one this year and they only ended up at number two just by, you know, beating the Colts in a game that kind of didn't matter at the end of the year. There's just no guarantee you're going to be back there. You could positively regress in a certain way. Your, your rookies could develop and then suddenly you're picking in the top 10 instead of the top five. And, you know, who's going to trade out of the number one pick with, if a generational prospect is there like that, it just doesn't happen. So the stars really have to align and, you know, there's just no guarantee. I think that, outside of Caleb Williams, maybe that next year, the quarterback prospects are going to be as good as they were this year. It could be just one. It could be just two. And you could be SOL at that point. Let me ask you just kind of a last question here. Um, Which player do you think is the most undervalued? Like when the draft first round of the draft is over, which player do you think has the potential to move up the most from the mock drafts that we've seen? So your question is in terms of, you can rephrase that, I guess. Yeah. Who, most like, for example, um, maybe another way to frame it is who's got the highest variance among the top players in the draft? Like this player is 10 in most mock drafts, but could go four. This player's wow. 10 in the mock draft, could go 18. Like who's got the most uncertainty around them that they could be a really high pick or they could slip, let's say, to the middle of the first round? Um, yeah, I, I think outside of the quarterbacks, yeah. you know, the position I think that it might be overvalued right now is wide receiver. Um, so Jackson Smith and Jigba from Ohio state is the betting market favorite. He's also my number one wide receiver. Doesn't really, he, he had a really productive, um, 
year, not the season, but the season before he had injuries this year that forced him not to play for Ohio state. Um, and so I think people remember the production from last year, but the combine and the workout stuff wasn't awesome. He did pretty well in the agility drills. So the sign is, is that he's not like a super quick, quick, quick guy or super fast guy. He's more quick, I guess. Um, he's kind of viewed as a slot only player. Um, so to me, I think there's an opportunity that he goes as the first wide receiver in somewhere in the top 10, but he could also fall pretty far to like the later half of the first round. Well, Benjamin, I'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. We've been talking to Benjamin Robinson, creator of Grinding the Mots. Uh, you can follow Benjamin at either B-E-N-J underscore Robinson. That's Benj underscore Robinson. Or you can follow him also on Twitter at Grinding Mots. Benjamin, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Great, as always. Thank you so much. So this has been uh, the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to the third quarter here on Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business all collide together. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week on the podcast edition, or if you're listening on SiriusXM, the SiriusXM 132 edition of Wharton Moneyball. And as always, guys, one of the great things about our show is we get to bring in guests who are actually doing analytics in the sports world right out on the front lines. Our next guest, Neil Greenberg. Neil's a staff writer with the Washington Post, whose actual beat is sports analytics. Uh, his stuff can be found in the sports section where he covers all pro sports as well as college football and basketball. Uh, Neil, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Glad to be back. How you guys been? Good, good. Everything's been great. And obviously, this is a very exciting time of year where, you know, although we're big NFL fans, although the draft is, you know, that's coming up. Ignoring that, baseball's going on, basketball playoffs, NHL playoffs. And so, you know, lots of good sports going on. Almost too much stuff to talk about here on <laughs> Moneyball. But one yeah, of the things, good, yeah, go ahead, Neil. No, I was going to say, this is a good time of year. Uh, no matter what type of sport you're into, um, you can probably find something to get pretty excited about. One of the things we've talked a lot about on our show, and we, and we know you just recently wrote a piece on this, um, are some of the MLB rule changes. Uh, as somebody, uh, Adi's been to a few games already. I went to my first game on Friday. Uh, the game ended in two hours and 10 minutes, which was amazing. But I don't want to talk about the pitch clock to start with. I want to talk about your recent piece on stolen bases. There's been a lot made of both the larger bases, the number of throws allowed. So first, uh, could you tell us what your piece is about and what your main findings were? Yeah, so um, I, I noticed, like like most people, that stolen bases were up, like you said, because of the pitch clock, because of the larger bases. And the um, the stolen base as a as a tool has kind of diminished um, in in recent years, um, thanks to a lot of the analytics pointing towards um, you know home runs being more lucrative, obviously, and 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 actually aggressively going for those uppercut swings, um, launch angles, things like that. But um, the the, the league got off to a really hot start in terms of stolen bases, upwards of 80% uh, success rate of, of second base. Normally we see somewhere around, you know, 70%, um, especially in the early part of the year. And, um, you know, I looked at that in terms of, does it make sense now to go back to stealing bases? Because, you know, when you, when you look to steal a base, let's say second base, 
you know, you're, you're trading it out for a better position to score from. So, you know, you, you know what, we know what the risk rewards are because we have all these games that we can analyze and, you know, we have a pretty good idea how many runs are expected with a man on first, no outs, man on second, no outs, no men on with one out. Um, so we can very quickly calculate the, the risk reward. And, you know, with the, with the, the rate of stolen bases upwards of, you know, very high seventies, low eighties, it becomes um, the risk reward is now in the favor of the stolen base. I mean, we've been kind of very, very close between the two, but, you know, generally speaking, um, it looks like it makes a lot more sense now, way more so than it has in, in the past. So um, besides stolen bases, I know you've probably thought about, we all have, about the impact of the rule changes outside of stolen bases. Anything else have caught your eye due to the rule changes in baseball, uh, whether it's the shorter games, um, you know, the number of, as we've talked about, the number of times you can throw over. Maybe it's the batter, you know, batter can't leave the box that often, which is also short in the games. How do you think it's going to play out during the season? Who do you think is going to benefit, besides us fans, who do you think is going to benefit the most? Then we'll go over to Adi and then Shane. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the the hitters are going to probably benefit the most because it's easier for them to cut down on their routine, in my opinion. And when you're the pitcher, you know, the pitch clock, you have to worry about the pitch clock. You have to get that pitch over. You know, if you're trying to, if you have someone on first base, you know, you only have two chances to, to, to pick that person off. And then it's almost, um, I wouldn't say it's a free pass to second base, but the runner know the runner now has the advantage because he knows you can't throw over. So I think from those aspects, um, it definitely is going to benefit the hitters. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm as curious as anybody. I, I have noticed that, you know, the expected stats are actually worse than the actual stats right now. And that's, um, you know, by a pretty large degree, the largest we've seen since 2015 um, in terms of, um, you know, uh, reaching or exceeding expectations in terms of launch angle and um, men on base and, and everything like that. So, um, you know, I think you I think right now the, the early returns are squarely um, that the hitter is benefiting. Well, let me just please point out here. I mean, so I, I think that uh, batting average on balls and plays are up certainly significantly. Um, and that's because of the shift mostly or is it just luck? I mean, because there's a lot of variance in that just naturally in a, in a short in, in, a, in only, you know, 15, 16 games or that there have been. But I think that's it's real. I mean, there's there's clearly um, lots of balls. I'm just noticing it. Lots of balls going up the middle that are going for hits that, that in the last few years were outs. Um, and I think that's terrific um, in general. I mean, I think getting men on base is exciting. But the number one thing for me, as someone who's watched a lot of baseball, I've only been to one game, I'm going to another this week, is it just it just is so much more pleasing to watch a game that moves along. Yes. Even if the total time is only 20 minutes, 25 minutes, you might say, what's the difference, right? What's the difference between two and a half and a three-hour game? And it's it's just a gigantic difference because it's just the experience of it is so much more clip. Uh, I mean, it, it, it just briskly moves along without this long um, – kind of pauses throughout I mean even the Yankees which are just sort of terribly slow with the mounded and the pitching changes their games I mean Cole pitched a complete game shutout that might be a redundant redundancy um in under two, in around two hours <laughs> what the hell that's like 1960s baseball yeah I mean like you can actually now make some plans after the game right like you're not <laughs> gonna be out all night but at least you know like you said I mean 20 minutes uh, 
Look, I've, I have a, a, a nine-month-old. I would love to have like 20 minutes extra anywhere that I can possibly get it. Um, so it's, um, you know, like you said, it just it moves along. And I think, you know, when we, when we look at the other sports, right, basketball, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, hockey, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And even, you know, football has this big spurt of, of, of action followed by a lull, big spurt of action. You know, baseball didn't really have that big spurt of action. It just felt like a lull. Um, and then something happened, but like you said, now kind of trim that down a little bit, makes it a little bit more enjoyable. Um, you know, maybe hitters can, can keep a rhythm better that way. I mean, I, I don't really know. Uh, but I have noticed the batting average on balls in play is significantly higher for this time of year. Um, as I said, weighted on base is higher than the, what we would expect. Um, so that might even out later. Um, but, um, you know, I, I do think obviously offense is up. We've seen that. And, home run rates? Uh, What's happening with that? Home runs? I'm sorry, say again. Home, home run rates. Too. Yeah, home run rates are up too. Um, the, the, almost every offensive category is, is up a little bit, right? We're, we're not seeing, we're seeing nothing that we can point to and say, okay, that's the reason why you know, we're seeing more runs or whatever. I mean, it just seems like offense all across the board has been elevated and slugging on base. Like you said, batting average, batting average on balls in play that in turn, obviously pushes up slugging on base percentage and MOBA. So we're just seeing, you know, these little incremental uh, pieces go up. And I, you know, I got to tell you, that's kind of like the heart of analytics in general, right? It was always, you know, finding these inefficiencies and just improving a little bit. And then, um, you know, having that translate across the board. Um, so we're seeing it at a league level right now. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious what you think <laughs> about like, you know, kind of like the extent to which these rule changes are kind of interacting or compounding on top of each other, you know, the stolen base thing, obviously, you know, stolen bases are up and there's so one part of that has got to be because they've actually made the bases bigger and there's a pitch clock. There's kind of ways in which they've made st- stolen base efficiency, more pro- or stolen bases more more successful in terms of their probability, but also because of the restricted shifting, there's more men on base. There's more opportunity to actually steal bases. It seems like I, I feel like the main reason stolen bases were down for the, like the last decade is that people on base was just down. I mean, you can't steal base unless you're actually standing there in this kind of like orientation to offense towards either striking out or hitting a home run. Neither of those are going to generate a lot of stolen bases. So I kind of I don't know when I look at the stolen base totals that are kind of happening, how much I, I, I should read into kind of it being sort of like an efficiency situation where stolen bases are kind of more probable per per opportunity or whether it's more just about there's that many more opportunities to steal bases. And so players are just doing it more. Yeah. And what we're seeing is um, more stolen bases in terms of opportunities. So like you said, man on first base, right, being able to do it. Um, there's also more run um, RBI opportunities per plate appearance. So like you said, I mean, there's more, there's more men on base. Um, you know, we're seeing a, I think a big spike in runs in the first inning, you know, that that's a, a sports betting market that I've been taking advantage of over the past couple of weeks. Um, I think that uh, I think I'm like 17 and three over my last 20 yes runs in the first inning at like an average price of like plus 100. Um, it's because they're, like you said, just the offense is up and the pitcher, the, the pitcher controls a lot, but I, I think we're underestimating 
Well, I think we're underestimating the pitch count a little bit because, you know, pitchers are in rhythm. They, they, they have a cadence of their own. And now you're, you're dealing with a pitch clock. That's certainly going to, to throw it off a little bit. Um, so I, so I do think that that's, that's swinging. Now, will that, will that persist through the whole season? You know, who, who knows? We'll, we'll have to wait and see, but I do think that the, uh, you know, the pitchers themselves um, are, are probably going to have to make the biggest adjustment this season. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host, professors of statistics, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Uh, we're here talking to Neil Greenberg. Neil's a staff writer with the Washington Post, whose beat is sports analytics. So, Neil, before we move away from baseball, what has anything caught your eye at the team level or player level in the first, you know, 16 to 20 games of the season here? Obviously, the Rays tied the record for the best start at 13 and 0, although I think they're 14 and 3 maybe right now, but that's still a very good start. Obviously, the Phillies, who are, you know, supposed to be this juggernaut team, are not off the particularly great start. Um, how, how do you see things, either a given team or an individual player, anything caught your eye? Yeah, um, I'm I'm probably down <clears throat> on the Rays more than most. Um, not to say that they haven't had a great run; they they certainly have. Um, but you know, you look at who they played against. I mean, beating up on the Washington Nationals isn't really going to be too impressive to me uh, long term. But obviously, having the start that they did um, is huge. I think the Dodgers are are probably better than they look on paper, especially from you know, underlying analytics point of view, they're, they're probably scoring fewer runs than you would expect, you know, based on their underlying metrics, sequencing, things like that. Um, and also the Cubs, I'm, I'm probably a lot higher on the Cubs than most people too. And also maybe San Francisco giants uh, for the same reasons. I think once you adjust, you know, how many runs they've scored this season, how many runs you would expect them to score uh, for strength of schedule. I think that they're right behind the Dodgers and the Rays. Um, in terms of, you know, if we're looking at like a power ranking. So, um, you know, I'm monitoring, monitoring those teams for sure and, and those division races because I think we haven't seen the best that those teams have to offer just yet, whereas we probably have seen the best that the Rays have to offer. So there's nothing that's happened in baseball yet that would change your, I'll call it, maybe I, that like who the top eight or nine teams are in baseball. You're still pretty stable on that. Yeah, I wouldn't say, I mean, you know, no surprise Yankees, right? I mean, I think the Brewers are up there. Um, Astros have to be up there. Yeah, Astros, although Astros, I I downgrade due to their strength of schedule as well. Um, You know, I think, uh, you know, the Mets, I think, need to do a lot better. I mean, they're, you know, they're, um, they spend a lot of money. They're, they're finally you know, they, they have a great pitching staff. They have a, they have a, a lot of the check marks that, you know, typically their crosstown rival has in terms of just, you know, looking at being able to, to sign free agents, have big bats, have big pitchers, things of that nature. Um, but yeah, I mean, Dodgers, Rays, Yankees, Brewers. I mean, I'm sure these are all teams that we can agree on belong in the, you know, the, the top quartile of, of the, of baseball, at least yeah, Shane, and, the, Shane yeah. and then uh, Shane and Adi. The Athletics are currently giving up seven point eight one runs per game. Is that going to continue, or is that going? <laughs> I mean, it could. Are they right? that I bad? Mean, you know, they were they were um, they were supposed to be one of the worst teams, right? It was either the Athletics, yeah. the the Nationals, and, yeah, and that, that's a historical pace that they probably the Royals, right? I mean, on, yeah, but... and um, 
you know, it, it's still early. I mean, that's the other thing too. You know, I look at the Reds last year and the, the terrible start that they, that they were on and, yep. um, you know, they probably finished a lot higher than we thought in terms of win losses, just based on that start. I know they were on like a, a 50 game win pace for, for quite a while. And, um, you know, it's, it's a long slog. There's so many injuries and everything, but, you know, I wouldn't say like the athletics, I wouldn't go out there and put like a world series future on the athletics just based on regression. Um, but, um, I think the Red Sox are also a big surprise. I actually thought the Red Sox would be a lot more competitive, at least for a playoff spot than they are. Um, you know, man, only because you still, only because <clears throat> you still think about them as a big market team and they are now 14th in payroll. Yeah. And, and, and I thought that they could look, the, the price probably justified it more than anything for me, but, um, you know, in terms of the risk reward. But, um, you know, baseball, baseball can be a little weird, right? I mean, like, you know, just as easy as we're seeing like a batting average of balls in play, you know, of 331 or whatever it is, you know, a team could just as easily start, you know, 280 and, you know, through no fault of their own, just, you know, complete, you know, bad luck, first 20 games of the season. And then you're in a hole and you're kind of looking around and trying to figure out like, you know, what to do. Um, but you know, look like, like the AL, I talk about this, about the Washington nationals all the time, right? They're a local, they're a local team, but just in the macro, you know, being in the, in the NL East now, they have, a, they have a real decision to make, right? Do they try to spend the money like the Mets are now, like the Phillies do in the Braves um, and try to compete that way? Or are they like a farm feeder system where they develop a lot of players and then try to, you know, flip them for for other players that maybe can help them in in the in the in the midterm. Um, but it's a brutal decision, right? I mean, you, what are you going to have? Four or five teams that are going to spend, you know, hundred and sixty million or I mean, that's that's a that's a decision to make. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you know the Red Sox would certainly be uh, a surprise a little bit, and um, you know, maybe again the Mets. I think the Mets have to get their stuff together because there's. There's no excuse now. Let me ask you a question, Neil. Uh, the Mets are eleven and six, and yeah, uh, you, you say, are, is it because you know, our, our our listeners don't know it, but you're wearing a Mets cap? Uh, a Mets <laughs> fans generally are very, very unhappy, um, and and not too particularly optimistic as part of being a Mets fan. What have they done wrong so far this season that bothers you? I mean, Verlander hasn't even pitched yet. Come on, eleven and six. You know, again, I mean, it's it's you know it's the the three wins against Oakland, right? Like, like they beat the Dodgers. That's great. Right. Like eight, six, but again, like if we're adjusting the, like we're just, I personally am adjusting everything for strength of schedule. And I'm looking at the Mets and I'm saying, okay, yeah. I mean, it's great. They scored 17 runs against Oakland. Right. I mean like that, that's not impressive to me. Um, you know, losing nine, nothing, you know, 10, nothing. And then nine, nothing to the Brewers back to back like that that's a concern for me, right? Like, yeah, it's great. You beat a team that stinks 17, six, but you know, losing against another potential playoff contender or however you want to talk about them, um, you know, is, is troublesome. And yeah, eight to six against the Dodgers. That's great. Let's see what they do tonight. Um, but again, I'm just looking at, you know, just adjusting what they're doing, uh, what we would expect, what actually happened and then who it happened against. And um, I think the, the, the Mets are probably like in the B tier right now for me. And I think that considering everything that they got going, they probably should be at the bottom of the A tier. 
So, Neil, maybe one last question on baseball before we move. I know you've written some recent stuff on the Kentucky Derby, March Madness, NBA. I want to get to that. Um, how many games throughout the season, we always try to ask our the people that do analytics in baseball, how many games throughout the season do you need to see for you to feel pretty comfortable on any predictions you would make for the season? Is it a third of the season, like 54 games roughly there? Is it, you know, where, where do you feel like it's obviously only a tenth of, it seems like baseball's already been going on forever, but it's only a tenth right. of the season. Where, where, where do you sit on that spectrum? I mean, it, it's different. It depends on what question we're asking, right? If we're asking about, you know, like how good a team is, then I'm, I'm probably pretty comfortable early on only because I know how to like regress performance. Right. So I like, I can get a general idea of, of what I expect a team to be. And I think again, you know, adjusting for strength of schedule is critical. I think that that's absolutely critical. Um, you know, in terms of like hitting performance, you know, you, you, you want to see, depending on what you're looking at, but I don't know, hundred plate appearances or so, or, or to at least get an idea of, of where we're going. Um, but it can also be like the underlying metrics, right? I mean, if, if, if I see, you know, if there's a player that's starting to hit more home runs than normal, but his, you know, hard hit rates up, his chase rates down, his strikeout rates down, um, and some other underlying metrics are, are trending in the right direction, and I, and I, you know, and I, and I have the benefit of talking to people, right. And if I'm talking to a coach or something and say, well, yeah, we tweaked his swing or what have you, then I don't need to see all that much to know that there's real improvement there. Um, so, you know, it really depends on what we're looking at, but baseball in general, I think this early of the season, um, strength of schedule becomes much more important because some of these teams like early on, what in the first 10 games, don't even play many games at home, right? Like they're just, it's just the way the schedule goes and um, you know, they're beating up bad teams and um, you know, just uh, we got to wait a little bit longer for, for me to feel comfortable with where they're at. Yeah. Adi, you want to jump in? Even though I said it's the last question on baseball, you wanted to jump in with I another. I want to get one quick. What's your over, if I give you over under on uh, 96 wins for the Rays, where are you? I'm probably over one. Cause they started 14 and three. Right. I mean, I think, I think that they're good. I just, you can be very good and still not be the best team in baseball. Right. I mean, I think that, um, you know, they, they got such a hot start. I, I probably go over 96. I don't think they'll be at a hundred wins. So I'm probably, you think they'll win the AL East? It's a good question. Um, I I don't know. I I, I don't know yet because I, I, I'm not sure about that yet. Um, I actually like Toronto, but how much I like Toronto, I'm not sure. Like, you know, am I do I like Toronto enough to 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 completely discount Tampa's chances or so I'm not sure yet. But next time I'm on, we'll we'll have it. We'll we'll ask that question again. All right. Well, I'm taking the field. <laughs> <laughs> so Neil, let's ask you about a few other sports. I know you've written about lately. So uh, tell us about your writings on the Kentucky Derby. I mean, we've had uh, people on on uh, horse analytics before. Um, I'd love to hear your lens and how you think about uh, analytics in horse racing. Yeah, so um, I I actually found Bill James in baseball and Andy Byer in horse racing around the same time, uh, back in the early '90s. And um, you know, for those that don't know, Andy Byer kind of revolutionized horse racing by a- adjusting a horse's speed figure for for track. Right? You know, we talked a lot about putting stuff in context, strength of schedule, something very similar. Um, unfortunately the, the speed figures are so ubiquitous now that they've kind of lost all their wagering value. So <clears throat> I've, I've completely overhauled my approach to horse racing, um, an everyday 
hard, right? Like the, the Kentucky Derby stays the same for the most part and, and the bigger races at the Breeders' Cup stay the same. But overall, I have a much more outside-of-the-box approach to horse racing that I that I learned from Mark Kramer, another fantastic handicapper that wrote a lot of books on the subject. Um, and it's it's looking at the patterns of horses and, you know, trying to – I go more for horses that are good prices – so I don't have to win as often than I do, you know, just kind of keying in on a, you know, two to one shot and, and, and putting big money on there. Um, so do you think uh, there's a mispricing on longer shots. Like maybe they're 15 to one, but uh, on a bet, but they're really a 10 to one horse. And so there's like, they undervalue. there's not enough uncertainty brought into this for uh, longer shot horses. Yeah, I think it's tough because it's paramutual. So it's really right. just opinions. Like we do know the, the horse racing market's very efficient, right? Your two to ones are going to win way more often than your four to ones, which are going to win way more often than your eight to ones, et cetera. Um, but I actually, I create my, I, I try to get a race down to a couple of contenders, two, three, four contenders. I make my own odds line and then I'll bet any horse that's better than my odds line. Um, so I think by and large, the public, the public's afraid of, of betting longer shot horses for two reasons. One, because they have a lot of warts, right? Like you're not going to get 10 to one on a horse that's won, you know, six grade one races in a row and, and has the best speed figures. Um, so they shy away from that. And two, so much of the, of the, the content for horse racing centers around the top choices in the race that there's almost like a FOMO that happens, right? It's like, you're, you're, you're almost afraid, even if you don't like the horse and like, you'll hear these pundits say this too, on these horse racing channels, which is, you know, I don't like the number five horse. I don't think he's a worthy favorite at two to one, but I have to put him on my ticket because of whatever. And like, that's just an awful way to go about your, your wagering in, in paramutual. And, you know, just like you'd never do that in sports, right? Like you would never say to yourself, I hate the Yankees in this game, but I'm still going to start my parlay off with a minus 200 shot that I think should be, you know, minus, you know, 120. Like you would just never do that. And, but because again, so much of the content for horse racing is garnered around the top choices and defensive play. And you got to have him because he's the favorite and he's the favorite for a reason. Um, I, I could take a completely different approach. I've kind of discounted speed figures altogether for the most part. Um, I'm just looking for horses that are where they're, they're not supposed to be because those are the horses that could show improvement. And, you know, it's the past performances for horse race are just that they're in the past. And it's, um, it should be just a situation where you, um, you know, you're just looking for the a horse that can give you a price and it's okay. You know, if you bet four eight to one shots and only one wins, because over time you're going to make money. Actually one last question about horse racing. And then I just want to get your last in the last minute or two we have, get your quick take on the NBA and the NHL, but let's one last on horse racing. How much, I don't want to call it momentum. I'll, Cause everybody knows on this show, I love momentum, but let's call it non-stationarity. <laughs> How much non-stationary performance is there? Like, can a great horse just have a really bad day? Can a bad oh, yeah. horse have a good Absolutely. day? Like, how much variation is there in performance from performance to performance for horses? 
There's tons. And, and that's the thing, right? <clears throat> you have to be able to anticipate change, both good and bad. Um, and a horse can run this awesome race, but it's because he's on the lead, right? Or it's because the field wasn't that good, or it's because he had an inside post and, 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 the, and, and there's a bias on the track for speed on the inside. Um, so then you take a horse, you know, from let's say like Santa Anita in the, in the first, um, you know, he's got the number one spot closest to the rail, able to get a clean lead, you know, six furlongs, wins wire to wire by five. But his next race, he's at post 11 at Churchill, and he's got to find his way to get in front of two of the speedsters that also drew the inside. So much energy is going to be expended that he probably is not going to have the same um, reserves that he that he would in, in the first race. Um, and you can also see that flip. So, um, you know, a horse could also be sick. You may not even know it, right? I mean, like, and sometimes the horse is in the race to get exercise or the horse is in the race just to, um, you know, because the, the stewards needed to, to get a field of, of seven horses. Otherwise the, the race couldn't happen. Um, so the, the trainer's doing a favor. I mean, there's so many reasons for a horse to have an up and down performance. So Neil, we only have a minute or two left. Let me just get your quick 30 second reaction. What, what are you seeing right now in the NBA playoffs? Anything surprising you, anything that you're looking at, uh, right now as like, this is a major upset likely to happen or what, what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, injuries are playing a huge role. And I think that, um, you know, perhaps we we discounted the Lakers too much uh, too soon. Um, but I think the, you know, for as chalky as we think the NBA first round is, it's certainly been exciting this year. And, and that's really all you can hope for, right? I think the NBA gets very boring when you're penciling in the Warriors and LeBron, versus LeBron James in the finals, you know, before game one even tips off the regular season. So the fact that we're even talking about underdogs having a chance in the NBA, I think, is is going to make this a really solid off, uh, um, postseason. And let's quickly go to the NHL, <laughs> something we talked about in Q1. Um, if you look at 538, um, I'll take, you know, 538 would take the Bruins and the Avalanche and give you the entire rest of the NHL playoff field. In your yeah. mind, is that nuts or what? That's completely nuts because hockey is so fluky. You know, you look at the studies that have been done in hockey and almost 70% of goal scoring is luck. So, you know, you just look at the Oilers Kings, right? Oilers were um, like minus 200 to win that game. They ended up losing four or three. Uh, hockey is so fluky. Um, I, as a general rule, don't bet much on hockey um, only because of that. Like you, you, there's just too much that you have absolutely no control over. Even if you have the best team, um, getting the best of it, you know, they can get all the shots on goal they want. That still doesn't mean that they're going to get enough goals to, to make it happen. So um, no, I, I would not take the avalanche and the Bruins um, and the field. Cause I don't think I've seen very few models for hockey adjust for luck enough. Whereas I'd be satisfied to take it seriously to plunk money on it. Well, Neil, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Neil Greenberg. Neil's a staff writer at the Washington Post, whose beat is sports analytics. You can find his stuff all over the sports section where he covers pro sports, college football, basketball. Neil, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. So this has been three quarters of the show. Uh, please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen and Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner. Some combination of the three of us and Kay Bassey are here every week on Wharton Moneyball, either the podcast edition that you're listening to or, of course, here on Sirius XM 132. So, guys, we obviously have spent three quarters of the show. We've talked a lot of NBA. We've talked, surprisingly enough, NHL. We just talked some horse racing. Uh, we've talked all kinds of sports. But obviously, um, there is some news going on in the NFL. I know, Shane, you've given some thought to what just happened in our city of brotherly love and Jalen Hurts. So maybe catch our listeners up. And what's your reaction to it? Well, I mean, I, I, I guess the, I mean, this obviously the, the 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 event that we're Eric's referring to is Jalen Hurts signed contract. Uh, it's actually, I guess, it makes him in terms of a, average annual value the highest paid NFL highest player paid. in history, which is kind of interesting. Fifty one million. Um, yep. But but you know, it's only a five year contract. It's got less guaranteed money than the Deshaun Watson contract. So. You know, you you could argue either way whether this is team friendly versus you know Jalen Hurts friendly. Um, it is, I think, from the team. I, I mean, I think if Jalen Hurts continues to play relatively injury free and at a the elite level that we saw him end last season at, I think it's going to be a steal. This deal because you've kind of essentially locked in elite performance for five years at kind of what would probably be sort of probably the peak performance of his career. But again, it's a big bet that he's going to stay elite. But let's remember if if he regresses back down to an average quarterback, then this is a significant overpay. Adi, you want to jump in? Yeah, please. Really elite. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to tell you that I know much about quarterbacks in, 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 based on my own work. But I, you know, I don't think Sumer or PFF or any of the 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 analytics type typically rate Jalen Hurts as one of the top five quarterbacks. I well, mean, I mean, I, he was before he got injured, he was being talked no. about for MVP this year. Sure. Oh no, 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 uh, MVP. But I mean, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, what but, what measure of a? I mean, yeah, I mean, this kind, is, kind of the ultimate measure of eliteness, really. If you want, to no, know. that's what uh, measure of popularity. I mean, the analytics focused people, the people, and this is what we should really should be talking about. We are an analytics show. We know. It, I think in, in 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 football, the difference between what the analysts say is the MVP, and who the public and the the I don't know how they determine in, in the football thinks is the MVP is can be quite different. Um, yeah, I don't think that's the real controversy here, though. It's not like hurts like. Looks terrible if you look at the peripherals. Oh, no, like, no, you know, it just not captures no, our imagination. Really. I think really the controversy is: do we have enough? Just you know, I th- you know, I, I I'm I'm willing to kind of classify the second you know most of what he played his performance last season, including the playoffs, as elite performance. The elite it's performance as yes. elite performance. Whether but you know whether or not that's enough observation. Whether he's done it for enough time to say that, you know, I'm I'm willing to bet that that's actually. I would frame it this way. And Shane, you see if you agree with this. I would say there's obviously one quarterback in the NFL who's truly elite. Obviously, that's Patrick Mahomes. I would say that the next tier of quarterbacks, we could debate that there's certain what. No, I'm saying the next tier of quarterbacks for me, I think Josh Allen's an excellent quarterback. I think Jalen Hurts is a had a great year last year. I think uh, Justin Herbert is potentially a great quarterback. I think Trevor Lawrence showed us something, but I wouldn't put him yet in that tier. 
I would say those are the next three or four quarterbacks in the NFL. Maybe when he's healthy, Lamar Jackson. But I mean, I don't put it this way. It's Joe Burrow is obviously considered elite by many. So maybe Mahomes and Burrow would be at the top with, but I think. I mean, of young quarterbacks, right? What did you say? Of young quarterbacks. Yeah, I mean, Aaron, yeah. Aaron Rodgers Aaron, suits up. He's. No, I understand. He didn't have a great year last year. But I think I think Adi, uh, it would I'd be fair to say the following. I think almost everybody would probably put Jalen Hurts certainly in the top ten quarterbacks in the NFL right now, and possibly even most people would put him higher than that. And so, given he's twenty four years old, you know he's still younger than well, you know. Remember our guest Hendon Hooker maybe drafted in the first round. He's older than Jalen Hurts, and Jalen Hurts has played three seasons already. I, I put it this way: I agree with Shane that, and I saw something about the cap hit. I was shocked at what it was. It's low. First of all, next year's his fourth year. So he's still under that contract. This was a contract extension. So I think his, I think his cap hits for the next three years are like 20 million, 30 million, 40 million. That's not that big a number. And by the way, you know how the NFL works, Shane. If he's still great in three years and he's been great, they can sign him to another extension and push off his cap hit again. You may never actually have this massive, they'll rip up this contract, write them to another five-year contract, and then the cap hit of 50, 60 million may never come. Yeah, so, and I mean, again, it's sort of like, I think it's particularly, I, I think it's interesting because we mentioned Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert. These are quarterbacks. I mean, the Lamar situation's extra complicated, and he's played a lot more. So really, I think the two analogs are Burrow and Herbert, right. you know, does this contract kind of basically, you know, give a floor to those contracts, you know, like, because I think we, to the extent that we would, uh, you know, argue a lead versus non-lead, why, why have a, you know, I mean, your power ranking, I think is a better way of doing it. Why, why we focus on a lead versus non-lead. He hurts is probably kind of in, you know, clustered at least close to Burrow. And and and, uh, and and Herbert in terms of the performance thus far, and they're go- they're kind of at similar kind of phases where they would be getting signed in the next season or two. You know, I, I think it really does kind of. I, I think I think there is some advantage to the Eagles in doing this kind of first among those three. I you think know, they, I they, agree they, with they, you. I the think they that in each cat- the contract that becomes the floor of the next one. Yeah, they can only get more. Herbert and Burrow can only get more than Hurts, not less. Yeah, Adi, please jump on uh, in. I mean, how much of it is guaranteed? So what if what if it turns out to be a 179 million of it, I think, was guaranteed. Yeah. Of the 255, 179 is guaranteed, which again, you know, uh, uh Deshaun Watson, 230 million guaranteed. So they didn't give that. But yeah, 179 million of it is guaranteed, Adi. But again. You know, as the cap goes up eight, ten percent every year, we're going to be sitting here in three years. Yeah, he might be, I don't know, twenty percent of the cap right now, and thirteen, twelve percent of the cap in four or five years. But yeah, one hundred and seventy-nine million of it's guaranteed. Well, guys, we'll obviously see how that goes. Um, but you know, I think I agree with. I like the way Shane phrased it. He played like an elite quarter. His, he had elite performance. Whether he's an yes. elite quarterback for the next five years, I don't know. But he had an elite elite performance for sure. I, I don't know. Were you really thinking it was a deal you wanted as an Eagles fan? Yes. You did. Yeah. Okay. I saw him during the playoffs. Uh, I saw every playoff game. Um, he was elite during the playoffs. He was great in the Super Bowl. I mean, yeah, he, he was, was one drive away and one drive and some ref calls away from being like the Super Bowl MVP. 
would have been the Super Bowl MVP for sure if they had won the game. Yeah. And if the defense didn't stop him once in the second half. Yeah. It was not his fault. If you had told me he was going to throw for whatever, three, four touchdowns, run for 75, 80 yards, and, and throw for 350 yards. Yeah, you take that all day long. Yeah, he had an elite performance in the Super Bowl. Elite. But again, you know, I mean, Philadelphia's also, it's worth noting, you know, uh, the Eagles also thought they had an elite quarterback the yep. last time around when they signed the quarterback <laughs> early to a big contract. And that quarterback ended up having a lot of injuries in the next season and obviously mediocre performance from there on out. So it's. Oh, you like, mean Carson Wentz is not yeah. elite? Oh, I just oh. feel like if you he go certainly to- was when they signed him. To that I, don't know, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel I feel like I miss Cade right here. Uh, I always feel like the base rate on this is just doesn't doesn't hold up. I mean, the the base rate of a uh, someone who's been elite in the past played elite, and then you give them a big contract. It's not like it's fifty fifty. I think it's it's worse than that in general. So, well, guys, we got lots of time, and of course, next week I'm sure we'll be talking about the NFL draft, which will only be a few days away. So, guys, let's. Uh, we've talked some baseball on this show, but never enough for Adi and me. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we in the last few minutes we have here on Morton Moneyball? Uh, why don't we talk about a little bit of baseball? So, I don't know, Adi, we'll start with you. Uh, what's caught your eye in baseball that we haven't talked about or that we didn't talk about with Neil Greenberg? Or what, what's caught your eye in baseball? Well, you know, it's it's all rule, rules changes all the time. I mean, there's some, obviously, there's much more action. There's more balls going through, batting averages and balls and play are up. I didn't realize home runs were up. I don't think they're up significantly. Um, maybe for April, I think we've had a decently warm April. That matters. Yeah. That's actually a, that's actually a new new uh, new baseball item. I caught my eye was uh, um, some talk about the effect of temperature on it. On- it has certainly been a much warmer spring in most cities. Yes, than it was like last year was kind of an unseasonably cold. What the study, Adi, what the study find? No, it's it's basically we all know that balls travel more in the in uh, warmer weather, right? Um, but there's been some effort to quantify exactly how much that is. Yeah. It's about one percent per degree, um, which is one percent more home runs per degree. Um, that's that's actually I actually Alan Nathan, who's a, a physicist who talks about baseball extensively, uh, he talked about it on his Twitter feed. Um, one of the things that that is interesting to me is is the shoulder months are uh, is where it all happens because um, the the if you're looking at say global warming that happens uh, most of the warming is is the colder months are not as cold so right. less bad marches Aprils Septembers um, I just grabbed some data from like Los Angeles there hasn't been any change in the weather in, in uh, June July and August over there but their Aprils and their Septembers have been have been a couple degrees warmer than they had than they were about 80 90 years ago um, so we're seeing slightly more home runs this year that's probably due to uh, um, it's not due to the shift or maybe it is. Um, uh, it's probably due to slightly warmer weather. Um, so that's one thing to think about, but I, I was, uh, what did you guys think of the Domingo Armand can, um, uh, and the rosin bag? We were, we've been talking about where are the umpires and the rules, um, with this, uh, hear anything about this. What, what was the story? So Domingo Armand, he pitched four incredible innings. And then after the fourth inning, the umpires came up to him and said, he had like me, a no hitter going, right. I think he had a no hitter going. They said, let me see your hands. Um, and his hands were extremely uh, chalky with rosin, which isn't illegal. The problem, of course, is that you might use a lot of extra rosin to disguise what other junk you're putting on your hands that is illegal. And they told him to go, go to, the, to, the, to the locker room and wash it off. And he came back with rosin on his hands and they didn't toss him from the game. Um, so they just I made think- him wash again. Like basically his hands were... Even though Rawson's a legal substance, it can build up to the extent that the umpires can just tell you to go wash your hands. I see. And I guess 
I'm not yeah. sure what the rules. I think that the, I think is that I think it might be that rosin actually covers up something that else. That yeah, is- no, that's not, I mean that's part of the re- part of the rationale for why they can kind of ask you to wash your hands even if theoretically your hands only have legal substances on well, them. Well, let's let's so let's just also talk about a, a few things have happened in baseball. Like I actually just put up on the uh, in our rundown um, some projections for the rest of the 2023 season. Yeah. Let me tell you some things that seem really surprising to me. So right now the Rays started out. I love always love doing this. The Rays are fourteen and three. So let's say they played. Obviously they played seventeen games. Let's say their forecast at the moment was ten and seven, which means they're four games above where they should have been. And of course you have to tweak them up a little bit on your prediction of how well they would have been at the beginning of the season. So maybe do you put them six to seven wins? Um, above where they were at the beginning of the season, the four they already have, maybe two more for the rest of the season. So is right now, at least on fan graphs, they're at 94 projected wins. Is that too low? Yeah, that's, that's what the, the kind I, of I, I don't, I don't think, no, no, I don't think it's necessarily too yeah, low. Yeah, Just because it's about- again, it's such a, it's, it's hard to kind of do these. It's just such a powerhouse of a division. Like it's such a, you know, like buzz of a division. I think that those teams are going to beat up on each other a lot. I mean, I know they don't play each other quite as often as they used to to beat up on each other, but I still think, um, you know, I, I think ninety four is kind of high. That's a pretty, you, you think so? that's a pretty shrunk forecast. Basically, yeah. you're still going with most of your preseason estimates on their on their ability. I mean, you might have bumped that up a couple games. How many did they? How many did they win last year? They won eighty six. Right. Right. So you basically, if if you just Rolled those extra seven. Right. There you are. That's all you are. So they basically have got them at preseason. And they're essentially discounting this incredible opening. No, because it's worth also, it's not just that, you know, they're going to regress in terms of the performance. But, you know, as Neil pointed out, I mean, they've been playing not good teams. It's, you know, it's like the Athletics, the Tigers, the Red Sox, all these teams that are, you know, looking quite bad so far. I mean, the Athletics. I mean, talk about something that's not sustainable. I already mentioned it. They're allowing over seven. They're averaging over seven and a half runs against a game. That's crazy. (laughs) The number that that you'll find weight. Here's the one that maybe now that I'm looking at it shocks me the most. Don't look at the rundown for a second. Mm. The Dodgers are eight and nine. How many wins do you think they're projecting for the Dodgers? 97. 86. 86. They don't think much of the Dodgers, huh? Wow. Wow. Possible. Well, yeah. All right. All right. Didn't I mean, I'm surprised. Been like 105 last year or something? More than that. More. Um, well, that, I mean, to regress them down, you, typically you never predict any given team to win 94 or not, more than 94 or five one, uh, runs, uh, wins in a season. I mean, no one. Uh, but 86 for the Dodgers. No, no, no. But actually, it's not that bad. Let me just, uh, let's justify it. I'll justify it. So, Let's suppose the beginning of the season, they were forecasted to win 60% of their games. That would get them to 97, obviously, right? Yeah, about. And now, let's imagine, obviously, they've lowered it to lower than I would, but they've lowered it to 540 for the rest of the season. Well, that's what would get you to 86 wins. So the question is, how much below 600 would you regress back a team that's 8 and 9? I would have gone to 57 or 58%, which would maybe give them another 3 or 4 wins, but it's hard to project them at higher yeah. than 90 wins right now. I mean... Unless you believe that they're really still a 600. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I don't want to regress too much based on what's happened so far. Because, I mean, it's, A, there's just not a large sample size to support regret, you know. 
Uh, and also, it's like they're so unbalanced. But I mean, it's like four I mean, series. You wouldn't right? regress sixty percent to fifty-seven percent. That's all it takes. I'd have to look at who they lost to to get to eight and nine. Are they good to you know? If it's if it's the Braves, like piling up, like if they're piling up, like yeah, I, I, I guess it's sort of you know, I, I think right now we can't even because you know the team, the amount of games we're seeing isn't even. It's not. It's it's both small sample sizes and incredibly unbalanced. But how do you how comfortable do you feel with the Dodgers at let's even just say eighty six to ninety? Are you willing, are you, Adi? Are you comfortable with that right now? I mean, 86, uh, I'm not comfortable with 86. Uh, 90, I'd be quite comfortable with. Yeah. Um, I I would have thought maybe a little higher, but I'd be comfortable. Listen, Fangraphs is a pretty mean regression machine. Remember last year when the Yankees were at one, won 700% of their games, uh, 70% of their games at, at the All-Star break, and they were predicting them to win 570, go the rest of the season, and shit, they were right. Um, yeah, true enough. <laughs> they got it right but, that one. Uh, but uh, I mean, they really are. They really hang on to their their, uh, and they regress really hard. Through a, they don't update um, performance very much. Um, obviously, they take into account what you actually did, but they tend to not react to your to uh, the actual performance. Um, I'm not sure it's the best forecaster on an individual basis or even aggregate, but that's that's certainly what they do. I'm not sure even what what it is the mechanism that they use. Right? I mean, I'm not sure how they do that, uh, but. Um, I mean, this is a great topic. We make we yeah, could last last time the Dodgers actually finished with less than ninety wins was twenty twelve. Yeah, well, I mean, not, not not counting the COVID year. No, I always ask you guys this every yeah. year, but I feel like it's my with the Wonder World Series. It's my obligation here on Morton Moneyball to continue asking this question. So let's say we look at Fangraphs numbers, and this is the concept I have of like in aggregate. So I look at their numbers. They're projecting only three teams to win more than ninety games. Forget who those three teams are. We. I, Fairly confident more than three teams are going to win 90 games. So when you make forecasts, do you ever kind of look at like, here's the resulting distribution, even though it seems coherent individually, but you look at the aggregate, you know, histogram and you're like, that can't be right. It's shrunken too far in. Then I got to do something about it or. Well, it depends on how you interpret these things. Like if you kind of think about their win rate, as a parameter, right? Then, yeah, of course, you would not want to have those parameters go too far to the edge of the distribution. But any season that you would simulate from these underlying proportions would, you know, there'd be randomness in that simulation. It's what a Bayesian would call the posterior predictive distribution. And that would have the extra variation that, you know, in it that would kind of, you know, in, 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 in season simulated from these underlying rates, we would see teams randomly pop up above 100 wins. I'm not sure it would be totally calibrated to the exact number of teams that you should have based in history, but I kind of feel like these are kind of, as long as you interpret these as underlying, you know, kind of like like proportions or, or like team strength kind of parameters and, and, and acknowledge that they're actual the outcome, the number of wins is going to be a noisy version of that. I think that gets you that extra variation. And so you can't look at these and say like, yeah, I can't look at, at, at this distribution of these underlying parameters and get the same range that I actually observe in the totals from a season. Yeah, it just, I agree with you. It just seems like things are maybe shrunken in just a little too bit, a little too much. Um, Guys, in the last minute or two, we have um, one of the things I guess Shane you put in the rundown was about Otani. So you can oh give us a goodness. sense of how great he's already been. 
Yeah, I mean, he's well, he's leading leading the major leagues in war already. 1.7 war in like what has it been like, you know, 16 games. Wait, so if he had a 17 war, that would be good. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Yeah, no, if he keeps it going, if he manages to be top five in both hitting and pitching again, um, you know, uh, he'll probably win MVP. Again, I don't know, but yeah, I mean, he's just been amazing. I was a little bit bummed out because like yesterday he was uh, supposed to pitch against uh, the Red Ho- the Red Sox and he started, um, but it, you know, kind of there's a rain delay, so he wasn't able to continue that game. But yeah, I mean, his hitting is off. Yeah, I mean, he's he's amazing. He's got like 142 OPS plus, but his pitching, he's started four, four games, he's allowed two on runs in 21 innings. Well, his ERA, his ERA is 0.86. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, he's an incredible player. Well, guys, that has been uh, two hours of Wharton Moneyball. Um, I want to thank our guests for today. Uh, We've had Neil Greenberg on and Benjamin Robinson on. Um, Obviously, as always, I want to thank our producer, Matt Datz, and our associate producer, Dion Simpkins, for keeping us on the straight and narrow. Uh, On behalf of myself, Eric Bradlow, my co-host, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner, uh, this has been two hours here on Morton Moneyball. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics, and we'll see you next week here on Morton Moneyball.